this is Sarah with Mormon True Crime and History on Instagram. I'm going to jump back into Philip Alston and his murders and the crimes that he committed. So by 1780, Alston has either lost property, but more likely he is doing the defrauding scheme because he claims that he only has 20 slaves. And then 1780, this is the same year that one of the Alstons, one of the Philip Alstons, is signing the Cumberland Compact in Tennessee. This is a secretive compact that is basically declaring what would become Knox County, Tennessee, to be independent of the government. They're forming their own independent government, and therefore they're not liable to laws or warrants. April 29, 1780, Alston gets appointed as a justice in both Captain Duckworth's district and Captain Cox's district. So his tyranny power is just spreading. In Duckworth's, he has William Poplin as constable, and in Cox's district, too, he has William Dunn as constable. So within four years, he has been a member of the Congress, recruiting commissioner, a member of the General Assembly, a second major, first major, lieutenant colonel, and colonel. He's also claiming that he's a lawyer, he's a justice in two districts, and he's also getting super rich off the rebellion. And his closest friends have been plundering both Tories and Whigs and doing the highway robbery scheme. Alston is accused by one congressman directly to the governor of murdering an old Scottish man, arresting people who aren't Tories, holding them without bail, and just living like a total tyrant. So May 13, 1780, as I said, Philip Alston and one Thomas W. Alston signs the Secret of Cumberland Compact with 248 others declaring the territory of Cumberland River in Tennessee, which became Tennessee later, to be independent of any government except the one they're establishing. This is the gang constitution prime goal, to have an independent government and to overtake the government. Hence the Mormon oath they used to take every time they'd go through the endowment house, which was every time they got married. And that was to overthrow the United States government, to avenge the blood of the prophet upon this nation and teach it unto your children and your children's children. Constitution of the gang says that all laws are created by tyrants and the Bible is the work of priestcraft who enslave humanity. Hence the endowment ceremony still doing this little scene where the Christian minister, Presbyterian minister or whatever is evil and Satan's whispering in his ear. So when the compact was signed, it was signed outside legal jurisdiction of the colonies. There are a lot of compact names that show up that are tied to the Alstons, family names that continue to appear next to Alston's and his cousins, Philip and John's children on censuses. They show up. They also have uh, the names like five Drakes are part of that. Well, Ebenezer Folsom's stepmother, Sarah, was the daughter of Reverend Drake in North Carolina. Thomas Hines. John Alston married Elizabeth Hines, Francis Hodge. The Hodges had deep roles in counterfeiting history. I've posted about uh, their murderous blackleg history and how they got offed and killed. Well, one Joseph Hodge was a private under Alston. There's four Johnsons. The Johnson family is also connected to gangs up north in Vermont and in the south and in Ohio, and later with Mormon history, Blackleg Apostle Johnsons. There are the Leapers. The Leapers I will talk about in other episodes. John Leaper is attached to Samuel Mason's gang for a little bit, but then it's obvious that he's a part of this push to chase out Mason and some of his members, and he is staying behind, which means he's a part of James and Ford's gang. He is also the neighbor of my ancestors at one point, who is living in Verona, Tennessee. It's him or his sons. He's said to die at that point, so it might be his sons, but there's a John Leaper. 
They're also mentioned in counterfeiting history in other places. So the Leapers are problematic. In their own family accounts, I found accounts saying that the Leapers had tons of stories about digging for gold and buried gold and how they buried gold in certain areas to a point where a daughter thought that the spirit of her dead father was coming and telling her where he had buried gold and everybody was looking forward to it only to find out it wasn't there. So again, these bearing treasure, bearing gold, bearing money, these kind of stories and spirit talk and things like this, pretty common with counterfeiting schemes because these treasure digging schemes were used as a cover, just like religion was used as a cover. So there's 10 moors. There's Simpsons. James N. Ford murdered some Simpsons in his gang area. They're Friedrich and Jacob Stump. They show up tied to the gangs by 1800. Uh, there was also a Stump in Pennsylvania who butchered indigenous people. William Woods, who's probably the brother of John Wood, who was living in 96th District in South Carolina. There was also a William Woods of Virginia who was Frank's cousin, therefore the nephew of John Wood, but he's probably too young for that. The Woods sometimes went by Wood and sometimes Woods. So for example, the Virginia Woods go by the name Woods and then a lot of them go switch back and forth between wood and woods so it could have been his brother there's wilson's there's erwin's goins hearts hayes givens denton's cox's the neighbor of alston's was cox there was also william cox who was a captain from cumberland under alston solomon cox was a private in 1781 under captain jacob duckworth and alston so again there's all these names that are tying up the longs the long name is a prominent name in counterfeiting gang history later on that show up on this Cumberland compact. So by September 19th, 1780, a letter appears claiming that Philip Alston has been absent from Cumberland County for some time. And because, it says, the removal of Colonel Philip Alston to a considerable distance from Cumberland, they suggest that Lieutenant Colonel Matthews, who has also resigned, has left them completely without anyone. So the people are asking that they get replacements for both of these men. So it looks like Philip Alston and Colonel Matthews once again ditch their positions of authority and just disappear. So it could be that Colonel Alston of Deep River is the one who signed the Cumberland Compact because it looks like he's been removed to a considerable distance from Cumberland County. I have a whole list of men who fought under these men. Um, I'm not going to say the whole list because it's long, but there's the Youngs, the Woods, the Wileys. There's some names that show up, a lot of names actually, that show up later on. Montgomery's, Johnson's, Gilmore's, Hall's, Folsom's, Cook's, these are all names that are counterfeiting names that show up later. So about July 17th, 1781, there's the Battle of Ray's Mill Creek. This is after the battle, which is led by Alston. And Alston stops by a man named Thomas Taylor's home. Taylor had made a comment that infuriated Alston. So Alston responds by shooting him dead, murdering him on the spot. Later, Alston and his friends claim that Thomas Taylor was a Tory, but evidence does not suggest he was ever a Tory. And even if that were true, he should have been forced to do what he was supposed to do, which is take him as a prisoner of war, sign an agreement that he will not fight for the British anymore, and let him go on the promise that if he's caught, he gets hanged, his property's taken. That obviously doesn't happen. In fact, Taylor's siblings had fought for the revolution and they were wealthy landowners. So it's more likely than not that Taylor was actually supporting the revolution. He had inherited property from his father and seeing as there was not a shooting fight mentioned, it's probably that Taylor was just a man who said words that infuriated Alston, knew too much, and he was murdered in cold blood. 
In fact, the claim about being a Tory never appeared until Alston's friends in the General Assembly tried to get him out of trouble for the murder because people were still talking. And the reason I think that he was not a Tory is because people got used to murders happening between Tories and Whigs to a point where it wasn't even something that most people noted. And so the fact that years later, people who fought for the revolution are still talking about this murder he wasn't a Tory. It means that people want justice for someone that they saw as completely murdered and not over political reasons. So it's the General Assembly rich dudes who are like, oh, it's because he was a Tory. Therefore, you know how many people got murdered by Tories and Whigs in the war? It's nothing to talk about. Let's let it drop. And so as soon as the General Assembly announces this, oh, it was a Tory. They, within a few days, are recording that we need the governor to quickly give Alston a pardon. The governor never would have pardoned Alston or even been considered to give a pardon to Alston if Taylor had been a Tory. Nobody who murdered a Tory needed to go that high up and get a pardon. Most people who murdered Tories ended up Revolutionary War heroes and very prominent in American history. So the fact that they're throwing that out says that they knew he wasn't a Tory and they knew that he came from a rich, prominent family and that Taylor's family was still causing problems about this for Alston. July 22nd, 81, General Ramsey and others like Joseph Hines are taken prisoner after the Battle of Catham Courthouse. And while in custody of Captain David Fanning, they become alarmed by the reports that they've heard about the violence inflicted upon settlers by their own officers. They write a letter to their rebel governor, Burke, claiming that we're all well treated as prisoners of war, but we're deeply concerned about rumors of the actions of men like Philip Alston, who they write are inflicting the greatest cruelties upon soldiers and civilians alike. They say some have been unlawfully drafted, others have been whipped and ill-treated without trial, others had their homes burned and all their property plundered, and barbarous and cruel murders have been committed in their neighborhoods. The officers they complain of are Major Neal, Captain Robertson of Bladen, Captain Crump, Colonel Wade, and Philip Alston. The latter, a day or two ago, a few miles in our rear, took a man on the county road and put him to instant death, which has much incensed many of the Highlanders in this part of the country. A Scotch gentleman the same day was taken at one McAfee's mill and ill-treated. He is said to be a peaceable and inoffensive man. He lives in the raft swamp, should be happy if he could be liberated. Notwithstanding the cruel treatment these people have received, we have been treated with the greatest civility and the utmost respect and politeness by Colonel Fanning, and we beg leave to inform your excellency that unless an immediate stop is put to such inhumane practices, we plainly discover the whole county will be divulged in blood, and the innocent will suffer for the guilty. All we ask is that the perpetrators of such horrid deeds be brought to trial, and that prisoners may be well treated in future. July 81. No one knows the exact date of the massacre at the Piney Bottom, but it's safe to assume from the secrecy of the massacre and the fact that historians still debate about when it was that Kenneth Black was still alive when it occurred and that it happened either in June or July of 81. And as the letter of rebel officers complained about the murders and mentioned Major Neal, Captain Robertson, Alston, July 22nd, 81, it's likely they may have been talking about this event. So in Cumberland County, Colonel Wade and his men had loaded wagons of goods, plunder, and they were turning home. They crossed Cape Fear River and camp a few miles from McNeil's Ferry. Some of his men then rob a girl named Marin McDonald. She's a poor servant girl who hired herself to a man by the name of John McDaniel. So this is where the account starts to change because it's claimed that Daniel Monroe 
paid a weaver who refused to buy or give back the girl's cloth that was stolen and that McDaniel got angry about it, but it's more likely that she was robbed for this as she is a relative of the same Monroe who helped plunder Kenneth Black after he wouldn't pay rebels like Alston taxes. So she later claims the cloth is her own when the plunder is returned, and John McNeil sends runners to gather men and inform them about where Colonel Wade is, and they call them Tories, and McNeil is asking them to pursue the party. But the most damning information is that John McNeil sent the runners and gave them directions on where to meet. The next morning, which is likely the same morning as he would have needed to move quickly, McNeil then goes straight over to formal Colonel Ebenezer Folsom, who's a Whig. So again, we have a problem here because we have a man who is getting so-called Tories to chase after someone who is plundering, and he goes straight after sending runners to gather them to Ebenezer Folsom, who was tied with Alston. It says in an account, Ebenezer Folsom's house, it points out he's a Whig, and remained until sundown. He then amounted a very fleet horse, which is a counterfeiting gang thing, they always want the fastest horses, joined the Tories at or a little beyond Long Street, and about an hour before day, came up with Wade and company, encamped on Piney Bottom, while Colonel Wade's party sleeping. So McNeil is mingling with a notorious violent Whig after he has said to send word to gather men to go attack another Whig. And then he stays with him all day until night, gets on a fast horse, and meets back up with the party he's arranged to go attack the Whig, Colonel Wade, and then they attack. So the accounts want you to believe that this is just a weird little coincidence and that McNeil didn't say anything to Folsom, that Folsom had no idea after spending all morning, afternoon, and evening until late at night talking to this man. Give me a break. This is obviously, he is sending word to get people to come fight. He is going and talking and getting permission and a plan from Folsom. And then he is doing his bidding, getting on a horse. There's no way the other account can be true. There's no way that he is secretly going against Folsom and Alston, these terrifying murdering people, plotting this, having all day spent with this person. And then without Folsom knowing, it's just going to go happen to go back and attack another Colonel Whig officer. So they say that they shot and broke the arm of a sentinel, rushed at them, killing five or six while the others fled, leaving everything behind. One boy who was raised by Colonel Wade was said to be sleeping in a wagon and begged for parole. Duncan Ferguson, a renegade deserter for the American army, told him to come out and he would parole him. He came out and dropping to his knees begging for his life, but upon seeing Ferguson approaching him in a threatening manner, he jumped up and ran. Ferguson took after him and Colonel McDougall's chased Ferguson, threatening that if he touched the boy, he would cut him down. But Ferguson refused to stop, caught the boy, and then with his own broadsword split his head wide open so that half of it fell on one's shoulder and the other half on the other's shoulder. It does appear that Wade had infuriated people by plundering, for it's admitted that these Tory officers, so-called, take everything from the wagons, including money. And then that John McNeil, who's present, goes straight back to his neighbor, John McDaniel, and tells him what they've done, how much plunder money and other things they found, shows McDaniel the cloth, which then Maureen claims is her own. So the poor girl had her plundered cloth unexpectedly returned to her, according to the account. So the next morning, Captain Culp appears at the house of old Mr. McLean, accusing him of being at Piney Bottom, but he wasn't even there. And he either gave or had his saddle taken by Culp, who then rides home with Wade. They collect about a hundred dragoons and return, swearing vengeance. They camp at the house of Daniel Patterson, a piper. They caught the old man and whipped him until he gave up the names of all who are Piney Bottom, and likely 
truthfully under torture, he probably just either named whoever he thought they wanted, or they probably already made up their mind. So they go into Moore County. This is Alston's, remember Cumberland Moore. This is their territory. They catch one Alexander McLeod while surrounding his 11-year-old brother John with an armed guard, and then they ride to a field where they find John Clark, Daniel McMillan, and Duncan Curry, Alan McSweeney, and an Irish-British deserter who's making potato hills. They're all just doing normal field stuff. Two of those men had been at Piney Bottom, supposedly, while the others, though, they knew had not. At some point, they catch one who they called Old Man Black, likely Kenneth Black. They tortured the Old Man Black very much by beating him with their swords and screwing his thumb in a gun lock until blood gushed out on each side. It is claimed it was to get names, but it's obvious it's not even for that because under torture, Black still had no names to give. So then a drunk Captain Bogan, in a great rage, orders all the tied-up prisoners to be murdered by having their heads split open. Alexander McLeod was taken and they begin to try and hack his skull open, but he throws up his arms that are tied and he moves his head about, which leaves him mangled but not with a split open skull. The other tied up prisoners, including the boy, then flee. McLeod was shot in the back three times. John Clark shot as he runs inside his house and dies instantly, tied up still. His hands are still tied. Duncan Curry is shot as he tries to climb over a fence. Daniel McMillan came into the house begging for his life with blood streaming from his side, his hunting shirt on fire. Whenever a hunting shirt is on fire from a gunshot, it's because back then the spark from the gun from the musket is so close range that it actually will sometimes spark the clothing of people and catch it on fire. This happened with the assassination, Colville assassination that Mormons had ordered that involved former prophet Hinckley's grandfather's brother who had been sent from Salt Lake City to murder these people. The survivor had ran. He had been shot close range in the back and his shirt caught on fire, which is why he actually dove into the river, which ended up saving his life temporarily because the Mormons coaxed him out of a fort by claiming his mother was dying and she wants to see you and he disappeared and was never seen again. But that's something that happens only when you are shot close range. So they said that he had been shot in the shoulder. His wrist had been cut and broken by a sword. His arm was shattered and torn by a musket ball, two or three balls having passed through his body, but he shot again through his back shoulder and into his chest. Alan McSweeney is standing before the rebels having made it back home with his wife holding a baby, but they're incapable of hiding him and the boy in the house. John McLeod flees to his side for protection. On seeing this, it said, one of the men jerked the wife away, throwing her to the floor, but didn't harm them more. McSweeney then fled with his enemies in pursuit. His hands are still tied and his arms are tied behind him. He runs a quarter of a mile before they catch up and they shoot him several times. And then having fallen on his face, they split his head open to the nose. It's obvious this is murder. Their actions afterwards support that they knew it was murder and would be seen as such for they ordered the old man named Clark to have the bodies buried before evening or they would come back and put him to death. The old man that General Ramsey spoke of who was prisoner of war is likely the old deserter who they took with them tied down on a horse because the old British deserter they didn't kill right away but they took him. So then they camped on a little creek and they say in the accounts that this old deserter was never heard of again. But as some guns were heard on that morning and some bones were found years afterwards at or near their encampment, no doubt could be entertained that he was put to death. General Ramsey wrote that Phil Alston, the latter a day or two ago, a few miles in our rear, took an old man, a man on the road, and put him to instant death, which has incensed many of the Highlanders in this part of the country. A Scotch gentleman the same day was taken at one McVee's mill and ill-treated. He is 
said to be peaceful. So it appears that this general massacre at the time definitely involved false some, some way. McDaniel had gone straight to him, stays all day, and then goes back to the group before they attack Wade. And it's interesting because Captain Joseph Crump, his role in the revolution, he's mentioned in this, is a great mystery. It's known that he's a part of the Chatham, North Carolina Regiment, the same county where Alston's first children were born. But there aren't any records to show who his lieutenants, ensigns, sergeants, or corporals were. So once again, they don't record these things because it's not beneficial to them to have official records linking them all together. There are also no records showing which battles he fought in. He appears around 1778, and his involvement in the war is still unknown. So gangs would use the worst men who had no loyalty, as I said, to any government. They often took deserters and the worst criminals. It's not likely that this massacre happened without the nudge, wink, wink, of Folsom or direct planning. And it may be that Wade had infuriated Alston to a certain point. It may have been that Wade had people with him that Alston decided needed to die as a grandmaster if he thought someone couldn't be trusted, if they were a part of his gang and he wanted them murdered, then they had to die. I don't know exactly what's going on here, but I do know this. There is no way when you have someone who's murdering two sides of people and using the war, according to Washington's followers, to murder their own people, that you're going to risk doing these things and starting this quarrel with someone like Alston and Folsom. And so this is an excuse to get rid of men who know too much. These gang members like Folsom, as I said, refused to arrest Tories who were murdering Whigs. So why wouldn't he be willing to plot something if it benefited him and Alston? So after they left the camp and the dead deserter, they ended up going to David Butcham's house, but not finding him, they plunder the house and burn it down. So July 20th through the 25th, we don't know the exact date, of 1781, Kenneth Black, who has been plundered repeatedly and repeatedly tortured by Wade's men and other Whigs, is murdered in a swamp in Ray's Mill Pond by Philip Alston. The day previous to this, Colonel David Fanning had stopped at Kenneth Black's home on the road to Wilmington. He had Black lead him there, and Fanning had taken Black's horse, because Fanning was delivering prisoners of war, including one attorney named Lightwood, to the British. So on Black's return home, he's spotted by Alston and his militia. He tries to outrun them, but can't. Black has been one of the wealthiest men in Moore County. He is also the person who took in Flora MacDonald. Flora MacDonald was someone who saved so-called the Bonnie Prince of Scotland, bungled him out during that rebellion, and who was deeply hated by British. She had played a huge role in the Highlander Rebellion, and that led to the disaster of Culloden. So she had lived with Kenneth Black's family for almost two years until the fall of 1778, and it was likely Black who had helped her finally get a passport to leave and return to Scotland. Flora had lost her property from plundering from Whigs like Alston and others, and in 1777, upon refusing to take the oath of allegiance to the rebel cause, which I don't blame her for because the truth is if you survived Culloden, why would you want to see everybody you know lose everything again? You're talking about taking on the biggest military in the world. There is no way that people who had a lot of property or people who had suffered greatly in other rebellions against the English are going to be like, yeah, let's do this. They're going to be like, oh god, no, not again. So the British had sent away members. They murdered a lot of the people on the field who were wounded. They imprisoned a lot of the people, even those who weren't a part of the rebellion, just who were whispered to have aided it somehow. They sent fathers, shipped them off to colonies. Some of them were indentured servants, but some of them were just sold up into straight up slavery in the Caribbean colonies. So again, they have every reason to be like, nope, 
don't want to do this again. So because she refused to sign the Oath of Allegiance, they confiscate her plantation. She had two daughters, both who were said to be raped by rebels in the fall of 1777. It's said that they thrust their swords into their bosoms, split down their silk dresses, and having them out in the yard stripped them of all of their outer clothing. I've seen another account that says one of them was forced to get naked and then walk home naked. I assume she would have been raped. There's no reason that they're going to make her get naked and then walk home unless they're attacking her first. So when that rape occurred, it was under Colonel Wade's company. He had fought with Alston in Georgia. He became a colonel in 1776. Wade and his men clearly had a lot more fighting and plundering than is known. His first engagement is recorded as with Alston in Georgia. But then there's a gap before he appears to start raiding Cumberland County in 81. It is claimed that Wade was present at the attack of Black and Flora's daughters in the fall of 1777. So she had been living on Kenneth Black's plantation on Little River, but his children got sick with smallpox and her two children had walked over to help the family. There's some confusion. This is kind of like something I see not just Mormon history, gang history, but also when there's sketchy things that people aren't proud of in the revolution. Events sometimes get reported together and facts sometimes you have to pick it apart like, okay, what actually happened? So for example, we know that there was a plundering that happened when Flora's girls were raped. So it's either the fall of 1777 or 78 and the plundering later that had occurred with Kenneth Black happened in 81, but he's also being plundered repeatedly. So at some point, Flora's girls before she's left have found these men plundering Black's homes, and they end up stealing from her girls the gold rings from her fingers and the silk handkerchiefs from their necks, then putting their swords into the bosom, slitting them down, stripping off their clothes. It says in one account, during all these transactions, one man was observed sitting next to Colonel Wade, who, as well as the colonel, seemed to pay no attention to what was doing, meaning what the soldiers were doing. It was old Kenneth Black who'd taken pity on Flora, whose husband had joined the British and had been a prisoner of war, and who took them in after the violence. It's not surprising that her husband would have been someone who they would have straight gone to and been like, you need to fight for us because we know what your wife did in the last war and you better be loyal to us. So it's not surprising at all. Excluding indigenous people and slaves, the next group that suffered the most in the war in the Carolinas were the Highlanders. There are so many accounts of unnamed people getting murdered in these areas and they're always poor and they're often Highlanders, which is really heartbreaking when you think about the fact they already suffered so much from the Battle of Culloden and the viciousness that the British used against them to break their culture. And then they get to America as new immigrants who have left and these rich families like Alston's and others are like, guess what? You're going to help us whether you like it or not to fight against your government. The same government that broke you, the same government that killed your family members, the same one that shipped your family members off. Yeah, that one. You ready for war number two? And they're like, God, no, I don't want to do that. And it doesn't matter because they are remembered as not being loyal to the American cause. They talk about them without pity. It's really like, well, they chose the wrong side, so it doesn't matter what happened to them. But I really feel bad for the Highlanders. It's like your heart can't break when you realize the history of what they've been through previously. They've already suffered far more than the rebels who look like the British, act like the British, mimic the British, ever suffer in the colonies. And that's because the Highlanders had a very unique culture and they were very proud of their culture and they would not mingle and adopt British culture as their own. So it's really just elitism, narcissism, and discrimination because the treatment of the two 
groups, both who are doing rebellions within decades of each other, night and day different. So Alston ends up attacking Kenneth Black, beats him viciously, tortures him, and then murders him. And whatever they hope to gain by torturing him, they didn't get any information, and they go to his home on Morgantown Road after killing him. So previous to this, Malcolm Monroe and Neil McCrane had appeared in the fall of 1778 trying to collect taxes for the rebellion. Most citizens felt confused because you gotta realize, basically, the rebellion at this point is consisting mostly of rich leaders and people who are opportunists who are like, cool, I'm gonna get a monopoly on trade or something. I'm a land speculator who wants indigenous lands and the line of 63 the king has says I can't have them. People who want to profit off of this. But it's also people who are rich because let's get real, the poor people don't have any say in a lot of this. So they're being approached by these rich or upper middle class people who are saying you owe us taxes because we claimed the government is no longer a real government and we are your new government. So these people are like, what the hell? Who do we actually pay? Because we're still paying British taxes because this is British land. And now we have a new group who says we have to pay them taxes. So average British citizen was paying in the colonies one shilling per year, but their counterparts in Great Britain were paying 32 shillings per year. So whenever these early pro-American revolution people are saying paying taxes to Great Britain is slavery, that's really comical seeing as the people who invented that saying were slavers themselves and also because they were already paying pretty much nothing compared to their counterparts in Great Britain. And now they're demanding to pay more. Give us more, give us more. We're your new government. So in 1784, even though the whole thing started with no taxation without representation and also that taxes were slavery, in 1784, the Congress of North Carolina taxes these civilians more than they've ever paid under the British, demanding one shilling to them right away, instantly, so that the Cumberland rebels can build their own prison and courthouse, aka Philip Alston and others. And Alston, John Robertson, Willis Dickerson, John Jackson, Thomas Matthews are commissioners to collect that tax. So all property valued over £100 is to be taxed one shilling. So that's higher than their taxes to the British, your yearly taxes to the British. All men who didn't own property over £100 were going to be taxed one shilling as well. The act was really brutal, and for those who refused to pay or couldn't pay within a short period of time, the act declared that they would be liable to distress, harassment, and sale of their property. So many people saw the rebel leaders as schemers, and they also knew rumors that many of them were pocketing these public funds. So at a time when they're being told, you have to come up with the yearly amount of taxes you paid to Great Britain right now, and then more on top of that, and if you don't, we're going to take your property, There, there's a ton of reasons. They know at the same time that Alston Folsom, all these other officers are pocketing those funds, and then Congress says, we need more, we need more. So there's great confusion, and I don't blame anyone, to be honest, who was like, I don't know who to support, and I also don't think I want to get involved in this crap. Because when you're looking at people like that as your leaders, I would not want any part of it. I would be like, yeah, no, I'm going to take my chances with the people that don't have involvement in highway plunder, robbery, theft, things like that. So when the rebel tax collectors came 1778 to Black's house, he refuses to pay, claiming only the king and parliament had the power to tax. Well, technically he's not really wrong, considering the fact it'd be like if someone started a rebellion now and told me that I have to pay them taxes, but I'm like, no, I currently pay the US government taxes and they're who I pay. So the rebels turn around though in the evening and they come back with Captain Bailey's company they take a slave, a stud horse, and a good deal of other property, amounting in all to seven or eight hundred dollars, which is equivalent to like a shit ton of money today. 
So Black wasn't home at the time, but he returned to find his daughter, Margaret, who told him. And then he hid and kept out of the way. And he says he showed no disposition to make resistance. During the period, the Scotch complained bitterly of such military officers of Alston, Sills, Crump, Cox, Hardley, Fletcher, Jennings, Pemberton, and others for carrying away their bacon grain stock of every description without making compensation or even giving a certificate and thus leaving their families in a destitute and suffering condition. That was another thing during the war. They would take people's property, but the rebel officers were supposed to leave certificates saying, one day when we have money, we will repay you. So what they're saying is they're just straight up stealing. So Wade's men attacking July 1781. Let's go back to that. Some of Wade's party arrived to Kenneth Black's house, but Black and his son were hiding in the woods. So Captain Culp and the others find them and take them inside the house. It says the men rode into the house until it was full of horses and the family were crowded up into the chimney, being pushed basically into their own chimney. It says having done this, they rode out, alighted, and commenced spitting some light wood to burn the house with the family still inside. They decided they should search and plunder the house first. They broke open two chests upstairs belonging to British captains, Verdi, Nicholson, and McRae, whose families were living as neighbors to Kenneth Black. They cut up the books, shattered the china, and stole other goods. Mrs. Black watched the men load up the plunder and told them they were fools, for their children had smallpox, leaving the men to drop all the clothing, blankets, and other stolen goods and leave. They forced Kenneth Black to guide them, and some of the men then demanded he be shot afterwards, saying, dead men tell no tells. Captain Culp is said refused to let them murder Black and actually has to force the party to leave while he stays behind to take Black home. But Dead Men Tell No Tales is one of the uh, living things of people like Alston and others and organized crime. So one of the party shoots at Black, missing him, but almost shooting their own captain. So this may have been a message to Culp as he seems to be the only one interested in not murdering Black. And Captain Culp ends up dead within a week anyway. He's murdered at his own home. So that could be that. The party then divides and plunders more people, including Alexander Graham's house and the house of Alexander Black. One man hid in a corn crib at Graham's while at Black's. One Archibald Patterson hid in a bed, and a young girl waved a broom over him to keep off flies, and she's saying that it's because he's dead from smallpox. They hear guns firing at Alexander Black's house, and the men excitedly yell that they've caught Black and gallop over to find him dying. Captain Culp, who clearly rejoined the party, then rode to a friend McLean's house, who he believed would be plundered and murdered, even though McLean hadn't been there. So Culp has already done two things that are going to piss off this party. He's already refused to let them murder Black, and he's already warning people that they're planning on plundering, that they're coming. So they arrive, and Culp orders them to move on. So they then go to Peter Blue's house, where they find Blue and Archie Mall McBride and shoot both, leaving Blue wounded and McBride dead. McBride was a Whig, and he had just returned from being a prisoner of war for the Whigs when he had gotten caught, and he had been paroled by the British. He had fought under Captain McCraney, which is something that rebel officers like Ramsey would have heard about and would have realized that this isn't about politics or war. This is a group of men plundering and murdering Tory and Whigs alike. This account has been written off in American history as an event where Whig officers and men wanted to teach the Tories a lesson they would never forget. Wade went on a plundering rage after the massacre at the bottom until the people were convinced that it was Wade's intention to scour the whole country and put every man who they called a Tory to the sword. Wade then went home, as did Culp, who then was approached apparently... This is the, how the murder of Culp is explained. They say that a free biracial African-American group followed him after he and his party had attacked one Turner, forcing Turner out at night and whipping him viciously. And they say these free African-American people, they say that they were so brave in this racist South place that they, these free African-Americans, follow him and then say, because you viciously whipped one of our brothers, we are going to murder you. So 
They say that Culp was then begging for his life and that the Turners had been warned that if this group tortures Culp, that Wade and others would retaliate and they'd suffer the same fate. So they didn't end up torturing him, but they shoot him down in his own yard and rumors are that they kill his family in revenge. I think this is likely a scapegoat cover for what happened. Killing an entire family was extremely rare. And if it did happen, then it was usually not about politics and not about a group of very brave colored people who definitely would have been murdered for killing a white officer. People of color are always scapegoats in the early colonial and early state period for crimes. These people are surrounded by racist, psychotic murderers and slavers, and they know that these people are murdering each other, and that those same people see people of color as subhuman. It's unlikely a group of biracial people would have attacked unless given permission by someone very powerful, and even then it's pretty racist to suggest that when white settlers who are free are terrified to retaliate against murderous groups for murdering their own friends, that people of color went into a murderous rage and murdered a wife and kids, not only Culp, who whipped, according to the excuse, someone that they liked, but also a wife and kids who had nothing to do with it just because their friend got whipped. It's like when I see some of these gang locations, county histories, saying that indigenous people murdered a man, cut open his belly, decapitated him in daylight next to a station owned by a gang member with zero proof that this actually happened by indigenous people, but indigenous people were at that time. They were called savages, so it's them, right? Even though there's no reason given for them to do it or who actually did it. But if a group of biracial people did do it, then they did it because some very powerful, terrifying white man told them to. Hence the weird addition in the revolution accounts that if you torture Culp, there will be retaliation. If they murdered an entire white family, they would have never told and admitted this to white people who are racist and living all around them and seeing them as subhuman. So who gave that weird detail? Who stated that as fact and it got recorded in history books? While biracial people had every reason to want to do it, it's unlikely that they, as a group, together were naive or stupid enough to sit there, talk about it, and then come up as a group with this idea that they can murder an entire white family, including children, and not have their own community completely murdered, destroyed, or tortured for it. It's about gang crime. The gangs, one of the reasons that Americans who were racist were very happy to accept that this is indigenous murder is one, it gave an excuse for them to go murder indigenous people at random and sometimes do massacres, and two, because they believed that indigenous people are savages, that they butcher. And the truth is that the gangs butchered. They would decapitate. They would stab. Look at some of the Mormon assassinations. 50 times a man gets stabbed to death. Gunnison's assassination. He's butchered to a point. They cut off his tongue, his fingers. They cut out his heart. This is something that organized crime did. Disembowelment, putting stones inside of them. So these racist settlers would find these brutal butchered people and go, yep, killed by Indians. That's the phrase you see written. Indigenous people got blamed. Slaves got blamed. Don't forget that Culp not only refused to allow the gang to kill Kenneth Black, but he was riding ahead and telling some people, they're coming to plunder you. So he's already breaking gang rules because he is informing outsiders about the gang plans. And that's a death sentence. And it's also very two-faced because the accounts against Tories or loyalists or British officers who are going after men like Alston, that's called evil and terrible, but violence like Culp's against 
civilians is called a lesson to the Tories. And then the violence against him and others in retaliation for their lessons to the Tories, it's, it's always called murder and massacres, but their own murders and massacres are just called a lesson to the Tories, things like that. So when Tories get murdered or people with the British cause, we recorded it as justice and revenge. But when a Whig was murdered for his crimes, it's always wicked. There's never any like deeper digging into why was a normal Whig officer murdered. It's just because the Tories hated them so much that they just enjoyed murder. And then when murders from Whig officers are admitted, it's always just quietly admitted and then just moving on. Nothing ever is looked into about who the victim was, why the person may have wanted them dead. And those things can kind of change the perspective. So Colonel Wade never did one thing to stop his plundering a murdering party. He acted in unison with it. And after the war, he tried to have John McNeil tried and executed for playing a part in the so-called massacre at Piney Bottom. It was former Colonel Ebenezer Folsom who testified that McNeil was with him all night until the night before the massacre, and Folsom claimed it was too far for him to have been participating in it. So not only was McNeil mingling with Folsom before the massacre and then left to go participate, but it's Folsom who is now giving an alibi for McNeil so that he doesn't get executed. Why would he do that unless he's covering up for somebody? So seeing as McNeil had gone straight from Folsom's to meeting the attacking party, even if McNeil wasn't there, he was giving directions. So it's also interesting that witnesses like Marin McDaniel and James Monroe were not called as witnesses. And it's claimed in accounts that, that they were warned, even if you do get called, don't speak about it. And when they were searched for it to be witnesses, they couldn't be found. This is something that organized crimes did often. It's something that happens with witnesses to Mormon crimes, Mormon or not. They go missing, they get bribed, they get blackmailed, they disappear. So there's a lot that goes into getting people not to testify against gang members. And it's noted that if those two had testified, then they would have testified that John McNeil had showed them the stolen cloth and that he said he got it at Piney Bottom and that he talked of all the plunder and money that they took. So he was there. He's the one who had the stolen girl's cloth. They also called him, his nickname was Cunning John. He's a close friend of Folsom and Alston. So there you go. It also appears that Black may be a separate man from the man that General Ramsey and other Whig officers wrote to the governor about on July 22nd, which, if that's true, would make Alston guilty of murdering two men in less than one week. Philip Alston and his company spotted Black on the north side of Ray Mills Creek, and he tried fleeing on an old horse. They were infuriated that Colonel Danning had captured some of their friends and taken them to jail, friends that included the attorney Lightwood and Thomas Dugan, who was almost hanged for his plundering crimes, but only spared because he had many friends and acquaintances among Fanning's men. Thomas Dugan was someone who is with my ancestors, Light Horse Company. Dugan was the commanding officer of Captain Hines' Light Horse Company over my ancestors, the Allreds Company. William Allred had been living less than half a day, 12-hour walk today from Philip Alston's house. So he's not his next-door neighbor, but they're still in the vicinity. Alston is connected in the gang with Ebenezer Folsom. Folsom had spent time with his father and brothers near Samuel Ford's gang's territory, and Captain Hines was born and raised there. And it's interesting that it is not an officer, like some accounts of officers stopping a execution of a prisoner of war who is unarmed from being murdered by lesser ranking men. This is lesser ranking men not only questioning an officer's actions, Colonel Fanning's actions, but intervening and telling him not to murder Dugan. Only about 17 men in that light horse company that was controlled by Hines and Dugan. So 
That ties the Allreds in with Dugan, ties it in with others, with Alston, Folsom, and all those. After they shot Black, he had rode on for almost 200 yards trying to make it into the swamp. He only made it to the edge where he fell into the mud face down. And then they tortured him trying to get him to, they say, extract information. Again, it probably was more that that was just a cover because, oh, we were trying to get information for the war. Seeing as he gave no information, it's possible he wasn't even tortured for information. He was probably tortured because he irritated them, knew too much. Says that while he begged for his life, they bashed in his skull with the butt of his own rifle. Some accounts say that Alston just stopped chasing him and went home. That's Alston's cover later. I was chasing him with my men, but I got bored and then I stopped and let my men continue to chase him and murder him. That's so unlikely. It's ridiculous that anyone would actually even dare repeat some of these claims like that. Like, you're a mid-chase and you're like, yeah, I got tired. You guys go ahead. Go kill someone for me. Come on. But with all revolution apologists, there has to be an excuse. So they always claim that Alston was so nice, he went back to Mrs. Black herself, which is totally contrary to anything that Alston has ever done, and that he apologized and said, my men killed your husband. I'm super sorry that it happened. Are you kidding me? Like, why do people still report this stuff? Why are they even still writing that account? Everything that someone does, even according to Congress's records, proves that is not his nature. And yet they still give that account. Other accounts rightfully claim it was Alston who murdered Black with the butt of Black's gun. And the day after this murder, Alston rode to Black's neighborhood where he found an old Hector McNeil, not the colonel, but a different one, and John Buchan making Black's coffin. Alston had previously sold a slave to McNeil, but kept the woman's husband, who was also a slave, with Alston. So now, after selling a slave to McNeil, he accuses McNeil of having harboring the runaway slave that had fled, he says, to Hector McNeil, and he tries shooting the old McNeil, snapping the pistol a few times at his skull, but not having it go off. So instead, he took McNeil hostage. He tells Mrs. McNeil that she can have her husband back if she hunts down his slave. So she and others go out searching and search for some time and probably are intimidating and torturing slaves of their own to get information about where is the slave hiding. And then they turn around after they get the slave and they give Alston back his slave who had fled from him and he in return releases the hostage McNeil who he tried to murder. So Alston's rich friends in the Senate argue based on testimony by John Carroll and John Kendrick, his friends, that the man Alston murdered was a political enemy during the war. Thomas Taylor had long been and continued to be an enemy to this state, they declared. And they say he was guilty of treason. Not even joking, this is on official record. A few minutes before, if not at that very instant, that he fell into Philip Alston's hands. Therefore, his murder, when it comes up and people are demanding that Alston be punished, is justified. So they say the committee are of the opinion that Colonel Alston, Philip Alston, should not be brought to trial on the account of the death of Thomas Taylor. And they say he deserves a pardon from the governor and determined this would be the best method to close the inquiry. Because mm-hmm. they know it's murder and they know people are going to keep talking. There is zero evidence, as I said, that Taylor was a Tory. So once again, we have this crime and people are reporting for years the way that Elson and Folsom are raiding and plundering Whigs and Tories and how the area of Moore and Cumberland, it says, was a deplorable state of things which existed in that region for some months after the Battle of Moore's Creek. Moore's Creek was at the beginning of the war. And this period, this area of these men is just constantly suffering the worst. So then when the Council of Safety in North Carolina, which part of that was John Wood, meets up with the Council of Safety in Virginia, they decide to take the arms 
of civilians, anyone who they say is a suspected person, meaning anyone who doesn't openly support them right away. So that deprived many poor people of weapons to hunt, and they already were poor. And so many backwoodsmen and farmers had earned their hunting weapons from their past enlistment under the British, because that was something that enticed poor people to sign up to die in wars for rich officers and the rich king. And that was, after the war is over, if you haven't died, you get to keep not only the money that you've earned, but you also get to keep your weapon, your clothing, the goods provided to the soldiers when you were a soldier. And for poor people who needed things like a weapon and needed to have money to buy some land, a little plot of land, these are tools that they need and they can't afford to give their sons. So a lot of people had earned those from being soldiers in the past war. So the Council of Safety went further than most civil wars demanding an oath of obedience to them or banishment. One author argued whatever irregularities and atrocities were committed by individuals or small parties, regardless of law and authority, should be put down to the accounts of the anarchy which prevailed in this revolutionary state of things. But I disagree. Anyone with experience in government, like most of those who plotted for the revolution and most of those who were in the earliest Congress General Assemblies supporting the revolution, they had been in government positions. They had known better and they knew how to properly govern and enforce law and order. Look at men like Washington and Jefferson. These old elitist families, they have been in government for a long time. They have been in military. And the people who benefited the most from the revolution, the people underneath them, they came from families that had done the same. So there is no excuse that the governor for the rebels in North Carolina and South Carolina, these governors are doing nothing when people are complaining that some of your officers are robbing us and we support your cause. Some of them are murdering and imprisoning us and we support your cause. There's no excuse for that. By 1780, Washington had hundreds of his officers being charged with crimes by his own supporters. In 1780 alone, hundreds are being charged with crimes at the time when they have the lowest support and morale. So there was seriously a problem with corruption in Washington's ranks, not just in the Carolinas, but other places. So by 1781, July 27th, one of David Fanning's captains who's in the vicinity is fighting Alston and his friends. His name is Linney, and he's followed by three men who, instead of taking him as a prisoner of war, cut him to pieces with their swords. Captain Culp's men were a part of the attack of Linney's men. So, again, we have Captain Culp, who got murdered, and some of the men that he had tried to control who were violent, they're a part of the murder of Linney and some of his men. So Fanning retaliates by capturing and hanging two of them. Philip Alston appears to Fanning, asking on behalf of General Butler if Fanning is willing to come to any terms. But this is an old counterfeiting deception scheme, similar to one that is used by his own cousins against the Spanish. They're getting him to do a truce. He even is signing over official documents saying that your light horse company will stop plundering. Mine will stop plundering. If either side plunders, we will turn them over. They will be executed or tried according to the other person person's laws. There will be peace, no more plundering of civilians. And he believes it's like a legit thing that they're going to come to a truce. He mentions uh, the light horse of North Carolina, Thomas Dugan's company, my ancestor's company, and says that these parties need to stop and that he's willing to do this truce. Well, it turns out that it may have just been a scheme by Alston to continue dragging things out because the letter comes back later saying, oh, sorry, the higher officers said no, after he says that these higher officers are the ones who wanted the truce with Fanning. And then Fanning starts getting forged letters trying to coax him out 
to places, and he knows they're forged. And he even writes back, like, mocking the forgeries, saying, like, good try, trying to get me out there, trying to pretend to be a different officer. This is the same scheme that Philip Alston's cousins in Natchez, about the same time during this revolution period, are doing to steal a fort. Pretend that somebody is having a letter come, they're forging letters and things like that. Alston is also trying to get Fanning to turn and offers him a position in their side, and he does not. So by July 29th, Fanning is arrived at Alston Plantation at Horseshoe on Deep River. There's a fight-out shootout. It's very hush-hush about actually what happened, how many were present. We do know that Fanning had Alston and some men that were inside the house. They were completely surrounded, and at one point, Fanning, after the shooting went on for a long time, he just kept saying, just surrender. You've got a wiping kids in there. Alston refuses because wife and kids are replaceable, just like all your gang members are replaceable. They're really just tools to be used to aid the leader. So he refuses, and eventually Fanning is like, all right, I'm gonna put a cart with hay, and I'm gonna catch it on fire and roll it into your house and burn you out, and your wife can die too if you want that. But he rolls it so freaking slowly that finally the wife comes out waving a white flag and says, okay, we'll surrender. Because Alston had already signed a British pardon, because he should have been hanged or shot according to the pardon he signed, or taken as a prisoner of war, I have found Fanning's actions very suspicious, especially when Fanning admits in his account that men connected to the All Reds like Thomas Dugan and others, that these men are spared because of men fighting with Fanning, getting angry and saying like they will either kill Fanning or abandon Fanning or arguing in favor, don't kill this person. I've always wondered if Fanning has counterfeiting gang ties because what he does here makes no sense. According to his own contract with the British, he had a prisoner of war who already violated the pardon. So he could have hanged him, he could have shot him, or he could have taken him as a prisoner of war. He should have, at the very least, taken him to the British at the 96th district to be imprisoned. He doesn't do any of those things. Whatever they say to each other that night, they walk away. So whatever happened here, according to military rules, was not supposed to happen. 1783 tax list, Alston is showing he only has, he claims, $2,985 as taxable, so he's definitely already defrauding the government because he's clearly lying about his worth. August 17th, 84, Hosea Maples is appointed an overseer in the place of John Overton as road overseer from McClendon's Creek to the fork of the road. Alston, John Overton, John Blanchett, Anthony Street, Phil Cheek, Randolph Honeycutt, William Payne, James Moore, Joseph Horser, John Carroll, Elijah Bettys, John Dunlap, William Poe, and Philippius Petty are to work the road. Again, you have to realize that the only people who want to move into a gang territory or neighborhood are going to be people who have like-minded views or are in a gang. Because the truth is, if I suddenly chose the middle of some unknown place in a Boston neighborhood and I moved there with my kid and I realized, holy crap, my neighbors are scary and they're definitely in the mob, I would get out as soon as possible. Most people aren't going to stay next to someone who is a grandmaster of a gang who is murdering people unless they believe that they can benefit from it and are in on it. So by February 22nd, 1786, Alston is deeding land to Joseph Gilbert. And that's important because the Gilberts in the revolution, there's some counterfeiting things that go on, including some murders that go on in Gilbert Town. March 1st, 1786, Alston gets 200 acres south of Deep River, adjoining his own lands and Hardin's lands, his neighbor. March 20th, William Searcy deeds 
his daughter, Elizabeth Alston, who's about 16 years old, 200 acres of land and 600 acres north of Deep River. November 20th, 1786, Phil takes a seat in the Senate representing Moore County, having been re-elected. Again, gangs control the politics. The Loomis Gang wined and dined politicians in New York throughout the 19th century until their fall when a posse attacks and kills some of them because there's no justice. Their justices of peace, their constables, and even their juries are packed. Their attorneys, their judges, they're all voted in and chosen by gangs. Same thing with the Smiths. They controlled and had voted in all politicians. Thomas Ford, who died suddenly, conveniently, before his book got published when he was writing his book. It later was published afterwards. He admits that they had to wine and dine the Smiths, and they had to do this because they knew that the Mormon vote, they voted in block, and they controlled the elections just like the Loomises did. So this is a gang scheme. This is how it works. December 1st, 1786, the Committee of Privileges and Elections has General Gregory deliver a report which mentions that George Washington's cousin, George Glasslock, has given a disposition on Philip Alston's crimes. Of course, these elitists who are deeply tied with families like the Alstons don't actually publish that disposition. I have no idea what it says, but I wish I could find a copy of it. The committee find it says, Mr. Philip Alston stands indicted for at the Superior Court of the District of Wilmington for murder, and that he is now bound by his securities to appear at the ensuing term. If this was a murder charge for the murder of Thomas Taylor, then it proves that no one believed it had been a political crime. And if it's not about Thomas Taylor's murder, then Alston had another murder charge in Wilmington. So like Joseph Smith, who still had treason charges, he still had warrants out. After Joseph Smith fled his treason charges, the court, the grand jury had indicted him and others for treason, arson, burglary, Parley Pratt and others were indicted for murder. And there were no attempts to extradite them until the Tolly affair, which involved my ancestor, James Allred. He was a Danite. Joseph Smith had Danites stealing property from people. And he and Allison Brown, who his son later gets involved with the Hodges, who are murdered in Nauvoo. Some of them are hanged for murdering some men in Iowa. They end up getting caught with what is equivalent to $67,000 of stolen property. So the way it would work is these gangs would still, they'd go on raids and then they'd dump the property in a like area and then they would have some men guard it. So these civilians track these people like my ancestor back to this depot of property that they have, this little cache. And they do the normal thing that civilians did when punishing black legs and that was they whip some of them and they try and hold some of them and then they threaten if you ever come back we'll kill you so when they get back to Nauvoo Joseph Smith has them swear affidavits say we got kidnapped we were innocent we got kidnapped and whipped look how mean the Missourians are but Governor Boggs has heard a lot about Mormons coming back into his state and robbing people and now they've just been caught so Boggs at this point turns around and says okay we still have these charges against Smith let's bring them down I need to get permission from the governor of Illinois to allow a warrant from our our state to cross his state lines and be valid. The governor Cardin says, all right, yeah, go for it. So 1841, there are attempts to extradite Smith for treason, but he has his Danites guarding him. There's a couple times where he is caught by officers. They call the officers mobbers. They call them illegal kidnappers. They use all these ridiculous terms and they chase them off with weapons and threaten to murder them. Smith even at one point tries to get the city council to pass laws saying that anyone who comes with a legal warrant from anywhere else to arrest anyone, aka himself, they are going to be charged with a crime 
and held for life in prison in Nauvoo. Yeah, this is the type of scheme he was doing. So by 1843, there's another attempt, and they're still trying throughout this period to arrest Smith, which is why he goes in hiding a lot. But after the 1841 attempt, this is when Joseph Smith gets angry and has his assassin go down and shoot Boggs twice in the head. And I found a record that said that a man named Peter Schertz, who had committed perjury previously in a trial for Joseph Smith, he, I read, was a tailor, and it said that he had lived with Governor Boggs for a few weeks before the assassination as a personal tailor. If that's true, then Joseph Smith had sent Peter Schertz, who had once lived with him, to spy on Boggs before the assassination. Peter Schertz ended up getting murdered in Utah, so who knows. But Boggs is sitting there one night in the evening. All the accounts, pro-Mormon, seem to forget the fact that while he's sitting there reading a book or the paper, his little child, who's six or seven years old, is sitting by the fire rocking the baby in a cradle when he gets shot twice in the head. So imagine being a little child and you're rocking your brother in a cradle and your baby brother, I think it's a boy, in a cradle, and your dad suddenly gets shot and his brain matter splattered all over the room and then he's shot again in the head. The rifle that was used was a really high-tech, the time, sharpshooting rifle. And my ancestor, James Allred, clearly was involved enough that he knew where it was because first they gave it to a woman who probably was sleeping with Smith and she kept it. And then at some point, someone had turned around and given it to an indigenous community. And that's probably because they didn't want it tracked. And if it did get tracked, well, then people of color can get blamed. That's how racist Mormons behaved, right? That's how they thought it won't come back to us. But before the Mormons fled over the state lines to avoid the counterfeiting charges against the apostles like Brigham Young, my ancestor James Allred went to the indigenous community and traded some things and got that rifle back. He clearly was not only involved in the Tolly affair, which is why Boggs then said this guy has got to be extradited, but he's also clearly involved at least with the people who shot Boggs enough that he knew where the weapon was hidden and where it was given. That weapon, there was a newspaper article that was printed and it ended up in the Allred family, I believe in Salina, Utah. The family still had the gun in the 20th century. After that happened, there was more attempts to get Joseph Smith arrested. And Joseph Smith kept avoiding them. But when he was arrested in Illinois, rumors were that he's going to be extradited now that he's in custody back to Missouri. If this would have happened, it would have destroyed the church. You're talking about a man who's being charged with treason in two states, and you're talking about a man who has a huge criminal record. And if that trial can be done, then it is going to destroy the belief that he was ever a prophet or a good man. And it was likely going to be done. Joseph Smith not only was running for president, which was annoying a lot of political people who clearly are bribable and blackmailable with the Loomis gang and other gangs, but we're also talking about something else that happened that made the political protection of the Smiths disappear, and that was that they voted in block, and Joseph had promised a certain political party in Illinois the vote. Later, right before the vote, Hiram got up and said, I had a prophecy, and I had a dream or whatever, and we're supposed to vote for the other side. So the political schemes that protected the gangs by supporting one political party against another, Hiram Smith destroyed that. He completely destroyed that. No one is going to trust the Smiths at this point because the other side ended up winning the Mormon vote, which won them the seats. So now they have destroyed the trust of both political parties. They have betrayed one political party after promising that political party the vote. The quid quo pro deal. So even the side that won the vote 
and didn't expect it, they're not going to trust the Smiths any more than the side that was promised the vote, that did the Mormons favors in order to get that vote, and then got screwed over. No one's going to have any faith that these people are going to deliver the vote. So this political scheme that men all the way from Ohio period, and truthfully, probably before when you look at what's going on with the judges letting Joseph off with slaps on the wrists about his crimes in New York, these schemes, these protection of gangs and promises in exchange for something else, they're this deal that some people like and other people just seem to be like, this is the way it has to be done. It's the only way that it works in this area. And the way it worked was politicians pretend it's not happening. They get the vote. Even the other side isn't going to say anything because you're talking about organized crime. And because eventually, at one point, their side is going to be aided by that crime gang too. So it's this weird, unwritten, invisible thing going on in American history. But it only worked if people could depend, if they're going to do you huge favors in exchange for a bribed vote, and you promise them that vote and then pull that rug underneath their feet right before the election, it's not going to fly. It's not going to fly at all. Hiram had already been elected. He was a part of the legislature in Illinois. His brother is running for presidency. So this is why these anti-Mormon parties suddenly get born. And suddenly, both politicians on both sides are like, screw politics. The Mormons are robbing their criminals. They run into their city and hide. And their leaders are criminals too. We don't care which side wins anymore. Just get rid of the Mormons. Let's just band together and all put in our vote for whichever party it is, as long as it's not a Mormon vote. So this is where the word anti-Mormon comes from, because they were anti-Mormon political parties. And this is right before the Smiths are getting arrested for riot and treason. So all of the political schemes, it's kind of that whole attitude of, if you can't beat them, join them. It's the only way to win the vote. They lost that support. This is something that's a reoccurring theme with the Mormons, even in 1838, when Governor Boggs sends out militias to put down their insurrection. The person who saves Joseph Smith and the leaders from being hanged and shot right away is a man that Boggs did not actually call out. And that's because he wanted the Mormon vote and he was already entangled with the Mormons. So when he heard that the Mormons have done this, he calls out his company that Boggs has not ordered him to call out and he gets there to intervene and interfere. And Boggs even commented about that in the legislature records of Missouri. There's note that I did not call him out. I don't know why he was there. He was interfering with the other orders that I gave to other officers. He was contradicting them or causing problems. So this is how it worked. But when you lose that support of scheming people who have power and are prominent, then the schemes of, yeah, we're going to let him flee. Yeah, I'm not really interested in extraditing him because you want me to. Those are all gone. The political power is the only way that gangs like the Loomises and the organized crime crap with the Mormons, they get away with it. For example, it was President Grant and his vice president, Colfax, who started to realize the only way to get the Mormons, that theocracy, to be law-abiding citizens and to stop all this shit that they've been doing since the beginning of Utah and since every state they've ever been in in the United States is to strip them of political power, which is why 
the Mormons got disenfranchised and they suddenly lost the right to vote, both the women and the men, because the Mormons had tried a voting scheme. We're going to give the women the vote, not because we actually value women or see them as equal, but because it gives their polygamist lord masters and the priesthood a second vote. And they knew that because everybody was admitting that these women don't even get the right to know who's actually running. They're told by the bishop. They're instructed from the pulpit still to vote in block. Okay, so it's really just a voting fraud scheme. So it was President Grant who was like, you know what, I'm sick of this shit. And if I have to send every soldier to Utah to get them to be law-abiding citizens, so be it. Also, strip them of political power and get all of these freaking crimes that they're doing and they've done for decades over and done with. They lost political power. Things started changing in Utah. Suddenly, laws were enforced. The Mormon judges couldn't hold office anymore. Judges came in. They found out there's no laws. The legislature that's Mormon has never passed laws on incest, on rape, on divorce, on alimony. Every single marriage, even a first marriage that has gone through the endowment ceremony, has never been legal. There is no marriage record for these people, and it was never legal. Which is why one federal judge said to a woman who had gone through the endowment ceremony, your marriage is worth as much as this blank piece of paper in my hand. It was never valid. So Brigham Young defrauded all those women when he said, I will give you a divorce from your polygamous lord and masters for $10 each, which was a lot back then, because they were never wives, not even the first wife. She was never a wife, not under church endowment ceremony. It wasn't real. It wasn't legal. It was a sham. And even those who were concubines, they never needed a divorce because the marriage wasn't legal and valid. They were all defrauded. So they strip them of their political power and suddenly Utah, for the first time, gets laws against incest and gets a real crime record because there's no laws. The judges can rule however they want. The governor was really freaked out when the committee sent by Congress to investigate realized Utah has been nothing but anarchy for almost 40 years. So after almost 40 years of fighting to get Mormons in Utah this hierarchy to be law-abiding citizens and not having them follow the laws and mock the laws and assault and even try to murder and murder at least one federal judge uh, and other people that were sent, including soldiers, the only way to get the Mormons to finally be punished and be obedient and suddenly start to quake in their boots was to strip them of political power. No more schemes involving corrupt politicians, no more reasons for people to protect them, and suddenly they are all on their own. So do not underestimate how big of a deal it was for Hiram to screw over that other political party and suddenly have no trust on either side from either party because they lost that because of that dealing. No party even the one that got rewarded, is ever going to go forward and trust the Smiths again to deliver the vote. And political power and scheming politicians and all the power in the hierarchy above in civil government and military government is the only way that organized crime can get away with their stuff. They have to put the right people in the right places. So this was huge. And this loss of political protection for any gang at any time period is part of the reason that gangs start to weaken. And so it's not surprising that suddenly Joseph and Hiram are being rumored they're going to be extradited back to Missouri now that they are in custody of the state of Illinois. They are going to be held responsible for treason and murder and other crimes. And they have every good reason to believe that this time the trials are going to happen. And Joseph likely was about to destroy the church and a lot of people who were blacklegs, not Mormon, and those who were Mormon, had a lot to fear from that. 
and obviously the Mormon leaders who were in the hierarchy and profiting financially off of the church, that would destroy their lives too. If it comes out, everything that he's done, who's to say that when he's in prison or on trial in Missouri for treason, that Ohio's not going to say, you know what, we still have conspiracy to murder and banking fraud charges here. Let's try him for those. Let's get him sent here. There's a lot of reasons why people would want Joseph Smith, even those who had been around him, quieted. So like Joseph Smith, who was following the political schemes of gangs and who had indictments, trying to run for U.S. president while he still had indictments out for murder, treason, and he had just been recently indicted even in his own state for bigamy, seduction of an underage girl, and perjury. And these were happening before he was indicted for riot and before he was indicted for treason in Illinois. Okay, I'm going to wrap this one up and then I'm going to jump back into Philip Alston and how the moment he lost political power, he also began to fall and it brought his end 